A reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning of verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must decide as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I mentioned a second ago, uh, this morning we're concluding a little three-part mini-series on uh, the vision of our church heading into the fall. And I've said uh, that there are three words I want us to focus on. So the first week we looked at the idea of a welcoming church and then last week a serving church. And then today a generous church, generosity. And I want to, I want to give us a vision for continuing to be a generous church, um, particularly in the realm of our finances. Now people get nervous. Are you nervous? When the preacher starts talking about money, um, I get it. I've been in church my whole life. I understand. But, but here's the thing, friends. Jesus spoke about money and generosity all the time, especially in Luke's gospel, interestingly enough. And, and so if we're going to be, be faithful to Jesus's message, we have to talk about it as well. And, and the Bible teaches us uh, that there, there are actually not that many. There are very few measurable factors that you can look at in your life to tell if you really believe the gospel or not. Uh, so, for example, next week we're going to start a series in 1 John. And one of the things that John writes repeatedly is that you can know that you believe the gospel by your love by your love for each other. That's going to be one of the big themes of our series this fall. That's one measurable factor. Another measurable factor is our money and our attitude towards it. Here's how uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts it. Keller writes, the Bible says there can be no significant spiritual growth unless you put your money and your attitude toward it in God's hands. And I think Keller is right. Because money is too pivotal, pivotal of an issue in our lives to be ignored. Think about it like this. Imagine that you go to the doctor uh, because you've just been feeling poorly. You've been feeling sick. You're, you're tired all the time. You're not sure what's going on. And so you go in to see your general practitioner and you say, doctor, I'm always tired. I seem to be constantly getting sick. Can you help me? 
what is your doctor going to say? He or she is going to begin by asking you a series of questions. They're basically going to say, listen, tell me everything, (laughs) right? Um, I can't just give you a physical check. How are you sleeping? They're going to ask. What are you eating? And how often are you eating? How much are you working? How much stress are you under? And imagine you said, hey, doctor, mind your own business. Stick to the physical stuff. You're a doctor. My psychological state is no business of yours. Your doctor is going to say, sorry, that they're all connected. Um, You can't break your life into departments. And it's the same, according to the Bible, with money and our spiritual lives. If we want to change and if we want to grow in our faith, we have to let God's word direct us on money and on everything else. In the last few years, interestingly enough, we've kind of transitioned from being a church plant to an established church. And one of the ways that manifests, you might not know this, but I know this and our elders know this, is that we've gone from asking other churches to money for money to being asked by churches for money. Does that make sense? That's been an interesting transition. And uh, I'm actually very excited about that. One of the ways God has established and grown us and rooted us as a church and will continue to do that is by causing us to be a generous church. I believe we are a generous church. We've never not made our budget. We see all kinds of sacrificial giving among you. And so I want to encourage you and thank you for that. But I also believe that our capacity for generosity is so much greater and a part of our future. So I want to both encourage you and challenge you this morning as we think about being a generous church. And there's any number of texts that we could point to to cast a vision for being generous. I settled on Paul's correspondence here to the Corinthian church, and I want to show you four principles, four principles of generosity this morning, four principles of a generous church, and encourage us to continue to be generous and to grow as a generous church, okay? So four principles. First, 2 Corinthians 9 teaches us about the impact principle, the impact principle. Look at verse 12 and 13, towards the end of what Jonathan read. This could have been the last point, but I wanted to place it first and highlight it today. Because the Apostle Paul here, what he's doing in context is he's taking up an offering. Paul's raising money around all these churches that he's planted throughout Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey and also present-day Greece, uh, for famine relief. There's been a famine in Jerusalem, and the very poor Jewish church in Jerusalem has been suffering as a result of a lack of food. And if you read all of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it becomes very clear that Paul is saying, I want you, Corinthians, to sacrificially give me finances so I can take them back and meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who have been struggling through this famine. He asked them to contribute to the needs of the Jerusalem church. And if you look at verses 12 and 13 especially, you see that Paul highlights the impact, in fact, a double impact that the giving of the Corinthians is going to have. One of the sides of this double impact is that they will feed hungry people, right? There's a material impact. Look in verse 12. Paul writes there, For the ministry of this service of your giving is supplying the needs of the saints. In other words, it's putting food in people's mouths. But there's also, on the other side, an immaterial impact. Verse 12. But it's also, he says 
overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And then verse 13, they will, as a result of your generosity, glorify God because of your submission. Now, here's what I want you to think about. This is really a crucial point. The church of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ alone has an answer for all of who we are as human beings, both our material side and our immaterial side. Isn't it true that there's a physical side to us people? And there's also a non-physical side to us people. We have bodies and souls or spirits. And healthy churches are having an impact in a community when they're addressing both of those sides of our humanity through our generosity. On the one hand, a generous church helps feed people. That's important. In another book in the New Testament, in James, James basically says to the Christians that it would be ridiculous for them to see a starving person in their church or even in their community and to say, God bless you, and then just move on. If you don't feed them, why are you saying God bless you? But on the other hand, the Bible's clear that full stomachs are not enough if people are praising the wrong thing, if people are living for the wrong thing. So the church, through the gospel, also, on top of meeting material needs, Paul says, causes people to praise and glorify God through generosity. So the impact that's made by the church when it's generous is unique in the history of the world. No other institution can address the fullness of our humanity in the way that the church through the gospel can. Think about this with me. The history of the world over the last 2,000 years proves, it proves that wherever the church spreads, everything in that culture changes. Wherever the church spreads, everything in that culture changes. That's not an exaggeration. Why is that the case? It's the case because the gospel of the kingdom addresses both body and soul, both material and immaterial. Let me tell you one example. Church history proves this again and again. And one example comes from a very, very ancient document that church historians uh, have uncovered. It's called the epistle, the letter of Di- to Diognetes, the epistle of Diognetes. And it's very ancient. It's probably written about 30 or so years after John the Apostle died. So we're talking like 120 or 130 AD. Uh, we don't know the author. We know it's written to this man named Diognetes. And he's being, uh, the man who's writing the, the, question, the, the letter is answering for Diognetes why Christianity is spreading so rapidly in the Roman Empire. And um, here's one thing he says in this letter. Read this with me. You read quietly. I'll read out loud. Christian citizenship, he writes, is on earth, but they're busy for heaven. They live in their native land as if it is foreign to them, for every foreign country is to them as a native land, and every native land is as a foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of everything. They are mocked and blessed in return. 2,000 years ago, this was being said of why Christianity was spreading. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the church spread so rapidly through the Roman Empire, the corrupt and decadent Roman Empire, because the community of God's people was countercultural 
in four distinct areas. I kind of want to preach a whole sermon on that text, but just for the sake of brevity. He says they're non-racist, first of all. Did you catch that? Every place to them is both their native land and as if a foreign country. Uh, They don't judge their identity first and foremost based on where they're from or the color of their skin. Secondly, they have a radical respect for human life. They don't kill unwanted babies, which was, as many of you know, commonplace in the Roman world, especially baby girls. Third, they have a radically countercultural sexual ethic. In the ancient world, sex was seen, much like it's seen in our day, as nothing but a material appetite. If you get hungry, you eat. If you feel a sexual desire, you fulfill it. Christians came along and lived with radically different lives. They said they share their table with everyone, but not their beds. And then finally, there's radical generosity. Did you catch that? They're poor and they make many rich. They're short of everything, and yet they have plenty of everything. The letter is one of many examples that the reason the church spreads, the reason the church had the kind of impact that it did was in part because of the radically countercultural nature of the way in which Christians thought about their possessions and thought about their money. Now, fast forward to 2022. I read an article this week that uh, San Antonio and Austin combined uh, by the year 2050, which, by the way, is only 28 years away. Ugh. 2050 is going to add another half a million people in our increasingly single metro Austin and San Antonio area. Uh, Church researchers tell us that for every 1,000 new people that move to a community, you need one church. So that means in the next 28 years, we need to plant 500 new churches in both Austin and San Antonio, as well as in between, which equals 18 churches per year for the next 28 years. And as these churches are planted, People in the culture are attracted to the radically liberating message of the gospel and the radical generosity of God's people towards one another and towards them, which happens in part through our giving. There's a deep impact, you see, and my hope for us as a church is that we will move in the next, not just four months, but in the next decade and beyond from being a church that is planted to a church that is planting, to be a church to move from a church that has received to a church that is giving. So when I think about us being generous, I don't just mean through your ties we're meeting our own needs. I mean we are supporting the work of church planning and other mission that needs to take place in our own community so that 2,000 years from now, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, they'll ask the same question that we ask about Rome. How did Christianity spread so rapidly then? And hopefully they'll be able to say the same sorts of things that we read about in the epistle. So when you live below your means and when you give generously to the work of the church and to other kingdom works, you're involved. You're involved in the generational seismic impact of the kingdom of God coming with its reign of justice and peace and grace in this world. So we're all called to generosity because of the impact it has on the world. That's the first principle. Second, the sowing and reaping principle. We looked at the end of the text. Go back up to the top. Look in verse 6. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. Jesus talks about 
this often in his teaching. It's an agrarian, right, a farming metaphor. Paul writes about this principle more generally in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Here's what he writes there. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he or she will also reap. So, in this context, Paul is very clearly saying that sacrificial generosity is a part of our sowing. We are planting seeds when we give money away. And did you notice there's a very explicit promise in the passage? And the promise is this, the more you give, the more generous you are, the more bountifully you will reap. The economics of God's kingdom are that sacrifice will lead to blessing. Sacrifice will lead to blessing. Now, that word sacrifice is important. Paul is not a personal financial planner, okay? He's not saying anything in this text about the question some of you are probably rattling around in your brains. What percentage do you want? What percentage do you want? Uh, In fact, in verse 7, he says, one must give as he is made up in his mind. So the best question is not, what percentage should I give? The best question is, what will be sacrificial? What will be sacrificial for me as I sow seed? And that's a different answer for many of us. For some of you, you're not really sacrificing in your giving unless you're giving like 50%. For some of you, giving 5% is very sacrificial. But the point that the scripture makes again and again is that when you give money away to the degree that it hurts, to the degree that you can't do or experience things you would otherwise be able to do or experience, you will reap. That's the promise, and that's the principle. Now, let me be careful with you here. What is reaping looked like? <laughs> it's easy to think that Paul's teaching that if we give a lot of money away, we're going to, you know, get 12% in returns for the rest of our lives financially. Paul's not a personal financial planner, although he probably wouldn't have been a bad one. Um, the dividends we receive for generosity doesn't necessarily mean more money. It might mean that, frankly. And I've seen that many, many times in my own life and in the lives of others over the years in the church. But notice what verse 10 says. The harvest we reap, Paul writes, is a harvest of righteousness. You're like, God, I don't want to be righteous, Luke. What I want is 12% a year. That's why I'm preaching the sermon to you and to me. But maybe you'll reap. Maybe your reaping is that you'll finally stop worrying about money. Maybe your reaping is that money will finally stop controlling you. Some of you won't stop worrying about money until you start being generous. When you begin to give in these radical proportions that the scripture everywhere describes, and when you find out that God actually has the power to support you, then you can finally feel secure. Maybe that's what reaping will look like for you. The prophet Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, writes about this. God, through Malachi, calls upon Israel to test him. Listen to what God says through Malachi to his people. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, God says, that there may be food in my house. And listen to this. Thereby put me to the test. Try me, God says. 
and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. What the scripture teaches is that God wants to bless you. He does. He wants to bless you, not in some sort of crazy health and wealth prosperity gospel way. That's not what I'm saying. But the Bible does say God loves his people and he wants to bless his people in all manner of gifts. That's his heart. But he can't give to a clenched fist, only to open hands. So let go, the scriptures tell you. Open up your hands and see what God does. That is faith. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. Third, the stewardship principle. This is my favorite part this week as I was studying. Uh, What I mean by the stewardship principle is that the way we view our possessions and the way we view our money and the way we think together about being a generous church should be motivated from a heart that understands that God is the creator. And by consequence, God is the owner of everything. We are stewards, not owners. Remember in the Lord of the Rings? You probably don't, but I'm going to tell you. There's this guy who rules over Gondor, and his name's Denethor. And this illustration is not in my notes. The Holy Spirit just put this in my head. Um, There's this guy, Denethor, who rules over the realm of Gondor, but he's not the king. He's the steward. He's only to rule until the rightful king, Aragorn, by the way, comes back. And uh, Gondor, um, Denethor's forgotten that he's just a steward. And so there's one part, especially in the third movie, which is a beautiful scene, where Gandalf comes in and has to very firmly, with his wizard staff, remind Denethor that he's only a steward. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we aren't owners. We're stewards. That's what Paul's getting at there in verse 7 and 8. Look in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, parenthesis, because he owns all that stuff, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. What is it in people who have been changed by Jesus? What is it in Christians that should account for our radical generosity? What is it in our church that should make us a generous church, willing to give away our resources for other churches and other people? Part of it is we believe that everything we have and everything we own is really on loan from God. It's owned by God. And God, in his grace, lets us steward his resources to meet our needs and to enjoy the world. He wants you to have fun and to use money to do so. That's not bad. That's good. And to help others. And and everything, not just 10% of your money, is God's. So you can give it away because he's promised to take care of you. That's what these verses teach. Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount very provocatively and very powerfully, if you ask me. He reminds us that God loves his creation and he loves humans most of all. And so because we believe that God loves us and that he's going to take care of us, we can be generous. Listen to what Jesus says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not also more clothe you? O you of little faith. Everything in our culture indoctrinates us against that truth. Do you know that? Everything in our culture indoctrinates us against that truth. Think about what most commercials say. You should buy this. You should experience this because you work hard and you deserve it. You've earned it. So go buy that Tesla. Go have that vacation. Go take out this credit card. But but what does God say, say to us? What did you earn that money with? You earned it by walking to work. You know, walk to work. But go with me here. Walking to work on legs that I gave you. You earned it by breathing air that I give you rent free. You earned it with the mind I created for you and experiences and education and skills that I have providentially guided you into. Heck, guys, the fact that you live in 21st century America and not in like ninth century Burma has nothing to do with you. It's a hundred percent from God. And now God says, I'm asking you to give and generously share a very small portion of what I've given to you and of what is mine anyway. If you're a parent, even if you're not a parent, I think you can get this. How many of you parents have had an experience with your children where you give them a gift. Let's say, let's say you buy your children a video game and uh, they're playing the video game and enjoying the video game and you, you walk through the game room and you think, man, that game looks pretty fun. And you say to your, your child, hey, can I play that game for a second? And they say, no, it's my game. How many times, how many times have you given your child a candy bar and they're in the car seat in the back, just devouring this chocolate, you know, it's all over their face. And you look in the, rearview mirror, and you say, Johnny, Sally, could I have a bite? No! It's mine! And you're like, seriously? Really? How did you earn that? By loitering around the house all day, right? Eating chips that I bought, right? You see the point, right? Everything is God's. God's the creator. God's the owner. We're asked to steward his resources and given a, giving a bit of what is already his back to him seems not just reasonable, but, but good. That's the stewardship principle. And then the last principle is the grace principle. The grace principle. Look in verse 13. This is based not on God as creator, which the prior principle was based on, but on God as redeemer. Paul talks about it. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they, that is the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they will glorify God, listen, because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And he puts it even more strikingly in the prior chapter. Listen to chapter eight, verse nine. For you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, by his poverty, might become rich. What's Paul saying? The grace principle is this, generosity. Generosity is a response to the grace of God in the gospel. 
And a generous church is a church that is more and more dwelling and living and growing in God's grace and the gospel. What is the gospel? Here's the gospel. In the gospel, we see that Jesus Christ did not just tithe to us. Jesus gave up everything. All of his riches, not just a tithe of his riches, all of them. Jesus gave up everything to give us everything. Jesus freely of his own initiative out of deep wells of love for you and for me suffered unto death to forgive our sins on the cross. Jesus endured the agony and pain our sins deserve. Jesus's wounds heal our rebellion and all of it is a gift. We poor sinners get Jesus's infinite riches for free. The gospel should cause us to recalculate what wealth is. We are all, if we've connected to Jesus in faith, indescribably wealthy. We're all indescribably wealthy if everything we see that's true about God and everything we see that's true about us is taken into consideration. We have all the riches of Jesus Christ gifted to us for free. We will reign as sons and daughters of God forever. We will live as kings, queens, and priests in a perfect, eternal, and blessed new world forever. We will enjoy God's presence and know Jesus Christ and see him and touch him and talk with him. Martin Luther once said, Martin Luther once said that a Christian is someone who wakes up every morning And says to himself or herself, Lord, you are my goodness and I am your punishment. You took all I deserved and now I get all you deserved. A Christian gets up every day and says, I am rich. So Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to command you to give. He says it very clearly. This is not law, but Paul basically says, I know that you know, I know you know the grace of the gospel and I know it's changing you. In fact, if you need to be commanded to give, you don't understand the gospel. You've never experienced the grace of God. If you want to give generously because your attitude to your possessions and your attitude to money is being radically altered by the grace of Jesus, that's a proof that you have experienced God's grace. The gospel inevitably changes our relationship with money and makes us generous. So let me wrap up with a couple of things by way of encouragement and by way of challenge. First, I want to encourage you and thank you again for being what I think is a very generous church. Keep it up. Keep it up. Live below your means. Be generous. You're making an impact. I, I also want to challenge you. If you, think, if you listen to me this morning and you think, that is a ridiculous standard, Luke. What you're saying is ridiculous. Um, you might not know the gospel. You might not know God. Consider that. But if you hear, if you hear me and think, gosh, Luke, that does make sense, but I'm not there. How can I get there? with my money. That's very, very different. And we'd love to help you and talk with you and disciple you into that. That's part of what it means to be a member of a church community. So come and talk with us or with our deacons. What a joy 
to be able to participate in God's work by being a generous church. What a privilege to be able to meet needs and support one another and use our resources, God's resources, right, for God's purposes. Can we this fall continue to grow into that? as we believe these principles and as the liberating grace of Jesus unclenches our fists from things we like to hold very, very tightly to ourselves, one of which undoubtedly is money. May he open up his hands that we might see him provide for us and use our generosity in remarkable ways. Let's pray.